This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. A new study by Christian pollster George Barna comparing America's religious beliefs and practices before and after the COVID pandemic finds some stunning departures from biblically faithful Christianity, including... A 14-point drop from 58% to 44% in the percentage of so-called born-again Christians who believe Jesus lived a sinless life on earth. Now, if Jesus didn't live a sinless life on earth, then he has no capability to be your Savior because he also was characterized by the very same sin that came from Adam You then don't believe that he had a virgin birth because the whole purpose of the virgin birth was to avoid passing down the sin nature to Jesus as the last Adam. So apparently Christians, professing Christians have lost it completely with regard to even the foundations for their alleged salvation. But that's not all. The survey released April 20th and conducted by the Cultural Research Center based on at Arizona Christian University uh, finds a mere 4% of overall Americans polled who possessed a biblical worldview. That's down from 6%. While among born-again Christians, the incidence of biblical worldview among them fell from 19% in 2020 to 13% in 2023. Another finding in the report which compares religious beliefs and practices in 2020 before the pandemic to 2023 found a huge drop among born-again Christians from 85% to just 50% who say they are deeply committed to practicing their faith. In other words, their Christianity is just cultural. But it's not all bad news. The poll found a 14% uptick in the percentage of people polled who agree that there are moral absolutes that apply to everyone all the time. Well, that's interesting. Moral absolutes, but we just don't absolutely believe what the Bible absolutely teaches. (laughs) It's amazing. More Americans in 2023 believe the Bible is the true and completely accurate word of God, according to the poll. And born-again Christians considered a leap from 47% to 59% who accept the biblical teaching that sex between two people who are not married to each other is morally unacceptable. So we have a very strange amalgamation of results coming from this poll. The uh, poll was called How the Faith of Americans Has Shifted Since the Start of the Pandemic. And it was released April 20th compares 2,000 U.S. adults in 2000 uh, to the same number in 2023. Of those totals, 671 were considered born-again Christians in 2020, that, that survey, and 650 were considered born-again in the 2023 survey. So what we're looking at here is a very interesting, you could say, progression of unbelief and disbelief and lack of biblical belief and understanding in America today. So is true biblical Christianity disappearing in America? Well, 
Let's go over some of these points here. Here are some of the notable notable findings of the report. A 12 percentage point drop in Americans generally who agree with the statement, you're deeply committed to practicing a religious faith. A 14% drop in born-again Christians who believe the Bible is unambiguous in this teaching about abortion. A whopping 42% drop among so-called born-again Christians who agree with the statement, you have a unique God-given calling or purpose for your life. In other words, the majority of the people don't believe they have a calling for their life and that God has a purpose for them. So they're on their own. So when we look at a study like this, which, by the way, is uh, not that different from a variety of other studies and polls that have been conducted over our country over the past 25 years, I have followed all of them. And they all follow the same general trajectory. Now, the problem is especially severe in megachurches. They're really good at marketing, but not very good at discipling believers. That's a problem. So when Jesus said, I'll build my church, you make disciples, when he decided, and we decided to build churches and not make disciples, you can see what the end result is. So, The question that I have as we launch into the deep here on Viewpoint today is why should we have a national day of prayer when it appears that the more prayer we have, the worse the condition in the church becomes? Over the last 50 years, we have had national days of prayer. I remember the days when Vonette Bright, the wife of Dr. Bill Bright, Uh, founder of uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, had been leader of the uh, National Day of Prayer Task Force. And then that was transferred to uh, Shirley Dobson, the wife of Dr. James Dobson. And uh, now I'm not quite sure who actually is heading it up, but I can say this. There was a period of time from 1993 through 1997, a period of, I believe it was four years all told, that I served as the National Day of Prayer Coordinator for the Commonwealth or State of Virginia. And it was a very interesting time. I remember sending out 8,000 letters to pastors all over the state of Virginia. And they were letters that were calling for the church to come into a place and pastors to lead their congregations for the National Day of Prayer into a place of repentance, not for the condition of the nation, but for the state of the church. You would be shocked at the response that I got. In most instances, there was no response. But then some of the responses that I got were so bad, so negative, so even almost pornographic that I literally had to throw the tape away that recorded those responses. In other words, there's great resistance. has been great resistance. Oh, yeah, we want to call out to God in prayer, but maybe not so much because we don't like what it might imply for us. So tomorrow we're going to have another National Day of Prayer. There's nothing wrong with the National Day of Prayer. The problem is what we're praying for or not, what we're looking for God to do or not, 
if we're looking for God to somehow wave a magic wand over an ex- uh, exceptionalistic nation to become more exceptionalistic rather than to humble itself before God and repent, we're praying in the wrong direction. I remember the words of A.W. A. A. Tozer, many people's uh, favorite writer and speaker. He said, prayer is no substitute for obedience. Men are always to pray and not to faint. No question about it. That's what Jesus said. Men are always to pray but not to faint. On the other hand, it seems that our nation is fainting. We're praying more and more in one sense. One person said there's so much prayer going up in America uh, over the past 40 years that God has to answer. Really? What kind of prayer are we praying? Today on Viewpoint, you're going to hear something going back to 1997 that will stir your heart. I hope you'll stay tuned. This is Viewpoint. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. What is the state of our nation? What is the state of our nation today? If you were to pen a uh, a speech that was going to communicate to your American brothers and sisters what the state of the union or the state of the nation was, what would you pen? Where would you put your focus? Where would you put your hope? What would be the most negative part? What would be the most positive part? Just asking. In 1996, three years after we formed Save America Ministries, I was under such a heavy burden for our country and for the church in America. And my wife began to realize that it was uh, weighing on me terribly. In fact, it was affecting my health. It really was. So she said, Chuck, you've got to get out of here and hear from God. So she made the arrangements, found a place called Prayer Mountain uh, on the northern slopes of Pikes Peak, America's Mountain, and set me up for a week of prayer and fasting there. And I flew there and spent that week in prayer and fasting. And before I went, I had begun writing an open letter to the church in America. Not to the nation as a whole, but to the church in America. By the time I finished that week of prayer and fasting, that document, that open letter to the church in America, turned into a lawsuit. Jehovah Jehovah, uh, God, the Lord of Nations versus the spiritual leaders of America, a.k.a. that is also known as pastors, parachurch leaders, broadcasters, publishers, and so on, as defendants. It was filed in the courts of heaven. Yes, not in the courts of men, in the courts of heaven. And it was set forth in five legal causes of action. The majority of the document was set forth in all of the accusations, shall we say, uh, 
that the pastors and parachurch leaders and leaders of America needed to respond to because things were not well in the church. The third portion of the document were points and authorities based upon the book of Jeremiah, quotes directly from the book of Jeremiah. And this document, 28 pages in length, was served on 300 of the most prominent Christian leaders in the land, people, men and women whose names were so well known that you would know most of them. Fifty of them were personally served at a uh, National Solemn Assembly in Washington, D.C. The others were served via express mail on all of the other leaders. About uh, three or four days after sending that, I received a telephone call from someone who I'd never met, never heard from. Her name was Nancy Le DeMoss. She was one of those who had received that document. She said, Chuck, you don't know who I am, I'm sure, and uh, I received your lawsuit. She said, I, I wanted to let you know how important this was to me. She says, what you do not know is that I have been scheduled to give the keynote address at Fasting and Prayer 96 in St. Louis in November of 1996. The keynote address. She says, I've been struggling before God. I've had a sense of what I should be saying, but I didn't know how to put it into words. When I got the lawsuit, she said, the Holy Spirit quickened to me what I needed to say. What she needed to say came out in the form of, well, here was the title, Begin at My Sanctuary. She addressed 4,000 Christian leaders there who were there not to pray for the nation as a whole, but to pray for the church. It was the first time in my lifetime that I'm aware of that there was a call to pray for the church in America, not just for them, whoever them is. I believe it was one of the most profound messages ever delivered in my lifetime. And today, in the balance of the program, you're going to hear from Nancy Lady Moss. You're going to hear some things. As I did an interview of her the next year, 1997, and what you're about to hear is excerpts from that interview. I hope you will listen carefully and with your heart. Nancy Lay DeMoss from Michigan. Well, welcome back to Viewpoint this morning. I'm Chuck Chrismeyer, your host. It's dialogue that demands decision, conversation with conviction right here on Viewpoint. Let me ask you a question. How does God call a nation to repentance? Have you ever thought about that? How does God call a nation to repentance? I was thinking about that a number of months ago, and I believe the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me very profoundly and said this. He sends a voice. He sends a voice. When you think back over uh, world history, you find that even uh, with the nation of Israel, when they fell away from God, and God could not speak to them any longer through their pastors and their priests, he called a special voice that rose above the crowd. They called them 
prophets. What does the voice say? It reveals the error of personal and corporate ways. It rebukes the, for failure to follow God's ways. It reproves for failure to do judgment and justice. It repents corporately while leading the people to repent personally. It revives the spiritual attentiveness of the people. It renews the authority of God and His Word. It reconciles men to God and to one another. It rebuilds the waste places. It repairs the breach. It restores the ancient paths to dwell in. What does God do to call a nation to repentance? He sends a voice. But there may be many messengers, yet they sound with one voice. And I believe that God has called Nancy Lay DeMoss to be one of those messengers who is sounding with a unified voice across the nation to call God's people to repentance. She was the lead speaker at Fasting and Prayer 96. Her short message tore into the hearts of the 4,000 people that were present as the Spirit of God spoke through this slight lady, probably, uh, I don't know, just a little over five feet tall, <clears throat> Nancy Lay DeMoss, whose heart God has broken for our country and for a nation in deep distress. I'm looking at a composite uh, presentation of her message called Begin at My Sanctuary, a call to repentance in the church. And I'm just so thrilled that Nancy has joined us here on Viewpoint today. Nancy, uh, as you look at our nation, is there any hope? Well, there's no question, Chuck, that as long as God is, and as long as God is on his throne, which he will be for all of eternity, and as long as God is willing to extend mercy, which we know that he still is because there's still breath in us, mm -hmm. and there is still hope. I was meditating this morning on Psalm 36, and it begins the first four verses by talking about the transgression of the wicked. They devise mischief upon their beds. They abhor that which is good, and what a picture of, of, of our culture. Mm. And the tide turns there in that passage, and it says, but God's mercy, but God's love, but mm. God's righteousness, but mm. God's loving kindness is as high as the mountains, as high as the heavens, as high as the clouds, and as long as there is that God with that character, yes, there is hope. You, in your address in Fasting and Prayer 96, began by saying there are no human solutions to the tidal wave of evil in our land. Nothing short of divine intervention can overcome the darkness and the lostness of our world. But then you moved immediately into a different kind of talk, and you said there are some prayers God will not hear, as if to make a commentary upon 20 years of the churches crying out to God for uh, change, for healing, for revival. There is a truth in the scriptures that there are some prayers God will not hear, isn't there? We find this all through the Old Testament prophets, and you think it uh, would be counterproductive to decry prayer meetings, but that's exactly what many of the Old Testament prophets did. You, ha you have the words of uh, God through Ezekiel and through Isaiah, God saying, though they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. Though mm -hmm. you make many prayers, I will not hear. I think of Charles Finney during the Second Great Awakening here in this country. Mm -hmm. He said he would not go across the street to attend an all-night prayer meeting if he knew that the people in that place were not serious about obeying God. 
And I think these, uh, I'm so thankful for the movement of prayer, for the concerts of prayer. Mm -hmm. I think there's a danger that we would think we've done the job just because we've organized the prayer meetings. You know, it's interesting you should say that because A.W. Tozer, who is a favorite uh, Christian writer of many, said prayer is no substitute for obedience. Exactly, and, I, and our organized prayer efforts and our most fervent prayer efforts, if we're not willing to say, God, shine the light in my heart, show me what it is that offends you, what displeases you, where am I not walking as one with you, if I'm not willing to pray in that spirit, and then to not only pray but to repent of what God reveals, mm -hmm. and those prayers are not going to go any further than the ceiling. Nancy, it seems to me that for 20 years now, and increasingly in the last uh, five or six years, we have been pointing the finger at the White House, pointing the finger at the Congress, pointing at the finger at the homosexuals, the abortionists, the liberals, and everybody else and his brother, but it seems that we have seen no progress and that we have somehow subtly averted where God says the finger needs to be pointed. What does God say about where the finger of responsibility needs to be pointed? You know, all of what you just described just sounds reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. That's where this whole mindset started. And God said to Adam, what have you done? And rather than just be willing to be honest about what he had done, Adam begins to point the finger. And we've been doing it ever since. Mm. Guilt and blame. Any, the pride of our hearts so blinds us that we cannot see our own personal responsibility. You know, you see all through the Old Testament that God gives people rulers like themselves. Whoa. And it, we have exactly, not only what we deserve, but a reflection of what we are. You know, it's interesting you should say that because uh, just before the results came out in our last general election, I came on the air and told our listeners that in order for Bill Clinton not to be reelected, the American people would have to vote themselves out of office. And I think what we have in... William J. Clinton is a mirror image of the general morality of we the people. Not only that, Chuck, but it's a mirror image of the general morality of we the church. Whoa! That's a serious indictment, Nancy. Well, we criticize the deception, the hypocrisy, the alleged immorality, the two-facedness at times. But that is exactly, I'm in a revival ministry that is in 200 churches a year. We love the church. I love the church. If you don't love the church, you don't have the heart of Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, and we weep for her and plead with her, and we are part of the church. This isn't us pointing the finger at the church. We, we are the church. of that. Yes. And yet we see week after week, day after day, the, um, un when, the, when the lid is lifted off the garbage can, uh, what comes out is that within the ranks, within our ranks as the evangelical church today, we really are at heart no different than what we criticize in our in mm. in, in government, in um, in our leadership in every sphere of this country. Folks, you're listening to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chrismar, your host. Our viewpoint on this matter of revival and. Uh, how to change the heart of our nation will determine destiny, is determining destiny. We're talking with Nancy Lay DeMoss, who gave a what ended up to be the keynote address 
among uh, 50 to 60 uh, different addresses from Christian leaders across the land at Fasting and Prayer 96 as 4,000 people gathered together in November in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, we're talking about what it's going to take to change the heart of America. And what Nancy is saying is that if the heart of America is going to change, it's going to have to start with your heart and with my heart in the heart of the church, those who profess the name of Christ. It's not going to start in the White House. It's going to start in the church house. Nancy, it seems to me that as we look back over the scriptures and we look at the message that God brought through his prophets in the Old Testament, and then we look at the message that God brought through his prophet Jesus in the New Testament, their number one castigation was always against the religious leaders. We're going to pick up on that when we get back from this break, friends. You've been listening to the recording of Viewpoint in 1997. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, SaveUS.org. And many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, SaveUS.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at SaveUS.org. May 4th, the National Day of Prayer for America. It is a wonderful calling, a calling to pray for all that are of authority that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life, as the Apostle Paul wrote to his servant Timothy. On the other hand, even though we should pray and not faint, we need to pray according to God's will, according to God's viewpoint. You see, viewpoint determines destiny. It always has, and it always will. And if our viewpoint doesn't line up with God's viewpoint concerning what we should pray for, how we should pray, and how should we, we should respond, then we're actually engaged in an exercise of pretense. Hypocrisy, actually. So if our prayers don't line up with God's viewpoint concerning who we are as a people, as a nation, as a church, then why are we praying? Do we really think that we can save America by our much praying? There's nothing wrong with praying. We're not against praying. We're the problem is we have not been praying according to the word, the will, and the way of the Lord as he sees his own people. As I indicated earlier in the program today, and we are going to hear further from Nancy Lay DeMoss in just a few moments, but as I indicated earlier, uh, I had been the chairman 
for the National Day of Prayer Task Force in Virginia for four years. When I discovered in talking with one of the premier prayer leaders of the land in 1996, and that person told me that we could not have a theme taken from 2 Chronicles 7.14 to call God's people and the nation to repentance, I was astounded. In fact, I said, look, we have had all these themes from 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people, which are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. I said, we began talking about heal our land. That was the very first thing. We went to the conclusion rather than the beginning. We didn't want to go to the conditions that God had, if my people. Notice it's not if the nation as a whole. It's if my people. That's where God's looking. The pagans are condemned already, Jesus said. John chapter 3, right there next to John 3.16. So he's looking at his people. If my people the ones who consider themselves to be my warmest audience, if my people, which are called by my name, or who call themselves by my name, if those people would pray. But it says, humble themselves and pray. To humble ourselves means we have to come into alignment with God's viewpoint. We have to see ourselves the way God sees us. As Peter wrote, And as James wrote, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and then he'll he'll lift lift you up. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives enabling power and favor to the humble, those who agree with his viewpoint, his assessment of their lives, his assessment of their country. If my people, which are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray and seek my face, Not seek his hand, but seek his face. In other words, look him in the eye. Can you look him in the eye? Can we, as professing Christians, look God in the eye? Would we allow him to guide us with his eye, or would we turn our faces askance, unable to look in his eye because of how we're living If my people, which are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn, here it is, turn from their wicked way, not from Bill Clinton's wicked way, not from Obama's wicked ways, not from Joe Biden's wicked ways, or not from all the Republicans' wicked ways, but from our own wicked ways. And that's what this prayer leader told me could not be done. Would you like to know why they said it could not be done? Three words. It's too negative. In other words, it wouldn't market well to promote prayer in America. On that revelation, 
I resigned as the state coordinator for the National Day of Prayer Task Force in Virginia because I realized there's no intent. The very thing that God says is our only hope, we're not willing to go for because it doesn't market well. And that was 27 years ago. And with all the prayer and all the things going up, we have not had any change yet, have we? No. In fact, things have gotten progressively worse. George Barna just told us that, the latest poll. And so let's go back to 1997, one year after, the very next year after that addressed by Nancy Lay DeMoss in St. Louis with her message, begin at my sanctuary, we hear what God's heart may actually be. Well, Jesus had um, merciful and gracious words to say to the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the um, down and outers, because they knew that they were sinners. And they gravitated to him and to his words and they were willing to repent of their sins to agree with God about the condition of their hearts. Jesus, on the other hand, reserved his harshest language and strongest denunciations for those who were the good guys, mm. so-called, the, the religious leaders, because um, he saw that their hearts were far from him, though they professed him with their lips. They were proud, they were stubborn, they were resistant, they were self satisfied, they were mm-hmm. smug, they were self-righteous, and Jesus, um, I believe that God is more grieved and more angry with our sins of self-righteousness, of pride, of unbrokenness, of self-sufficiency than he is with any of the so-called sins of the flesh, the adultery, the abortion, the pornography, the homosexuality, mm-hmm. these things that we decry in our society. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right. It's interesting that John the Baptist, the forerunner to Christ, called the spiritual leaders of his day a pit of vipers, and uh, Jesus called them whited sepulchers. And uh, they, they minced no words in talking pointedly to the hypocrisy of uh, the religious establishment of the day, and there's really no difference today, is there? Well, there isn't, and yet on the other hand, let me say, I don't um, feel the liberty to use quite the language of Jesus and John the Baptist <laughs> that um, uh, the heart of Jesus, the heart of John the Baptist, the heart of those Old Testament prophets was not just pointing the finger, it was a broken heart. I think of Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem yes. while others are celebrating this triumphal entry. He is grieving. I think of the prophet Jeremiah who says, day and night my tears pour forth from my eyes were the leaders of my people. And I think of Isaiah, you know, in the first five chapters of his prophecy, he was pointing that finger, woe to them, woe to them, woe to them, and speaking of the sins of his people and of their leadership. But you see in chapter 6, when he got into the presence of a holy God, mm-hmm. the next words out of his mouth are not woe to them, but woe to me. Yes. Those well of, spoken, sister. Well, those of us who are most concerned have the most reason to need to be humble and broken ourselves. I think you're absolutely right. You've indicated in your message to Fasting and Prayer 96 that we have not only flirted, but actually fornicated with the world. What do you mean by that? 
Well, the scripture says that this describes that beautiful word picture of, of the church as the bride of Christ. And he chose us that we should be holy and without blame before him. He chose for himself a bride to be pure and without spot and without blemish, to be mm -hmm. faithful to him, to be one with him, united. And, the, and the, of course, the earthly picture of marriage is to be the to the world the picture of of that whole relationship that we share with christ as his bride it's a mm -hmm. mystery paul says but a uh, a mystery that we are to make known to the world and yet when the truth is known when we look at our lifestyles our checkbooks our calendars what we really love what we really invest our time our heart and our energy and we have to say it's another lover it's mm -hmm. another lord it's another um it's another husband other than Jesus. That is uh, profound, uh, Nancy, and I think it's very hard for us to understand and receive that. Uh, it, it's interesting that the Los Angeles Times, which isn't known for its conservative point of view, did a major feature article uh, just a couple of years ago, it was 1995, called The Material World of Christianity, and it was analyzing what has happened in evangelical Christendom, turning the gospel of Jesus Christ into the gospel of materialism. And I thought it was so interesting. I mean, this thing is nearly one entire page in the Los Angeles Times that they've devoted to this. And uh, it seems that God has been trying to speak to the heart of his people, even through the mouth of a donkey. We have become very materialistic, even in the way we so-called market the good news, haven't we? And we are so concerned that the world be impressed with us, and that, the wor and that we be accepted by the world, that I believe we've accommodated our methods, and even our message, and our lifestyles to um, fit into the, <coughs> the world, rather than calling the world to fit into and accommodate to the culture of the cross. Mm. And we have got to return from the Congress to the cross, haven't we? Well, the cross is the hinge, the turning point of all of history, and I believe there is no revival apart from you and me, Chuck, and Nancy, and our families and our churches and our body of evangelical believers returning to the cross. And we'll be back after this. Stay Have tuned. you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Where does God put his focus for a nation to turn about? 
for a nation to have revival. Well, the nation itself can't have a revival in and of itself. The only people that can be revived are those that have been born again. The others were dead already in trespasses and sins, the Bible says. So God's message for revival is always, always, always to those who profess his name. To those who claim to be walking in his word, his will, and his ways, but are not. And one of the most difficult things about a message of repentance is it forces me, it forces us to look at ourselves. If my people, which are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray according to the humility that they now have in their own hearts to see themselves the way I see them. Reminds me of the Scottish phrase, would to God to give to give you to see yourself as others see you. How about as God sees us? Did you know, by the way, the Apostle Peter tells us that judgment will begin at the house of God. Judgment's not going to begin at the White House, at the schoolhouse, at the courthouse, it's going to begin at God's house. Why is that? Because to whom much is given, much more is required. So the prophet Ezekiel said the same thing. In fact, God said to him, look, do you see what's going on in my house? You call it a house of prayer, but do you see what's going on in my house? So begin at my sanctuary, he said. In other words, the cleanup job has to begin in my house. Not in the national house, but in my house. And then by implication, an application, if the church, God's house, is cleaned up, just imagine what 30 million professing Christians and their impact would be in the rest of the nation. But we haven't been willing to see it that way. No? Not since the 1970s, not since the 1960s. You'd have to go back to the 1950s to find anything close to what we're talking about now. And so we're listening to Nancy Lee DeMoss. She joined me on Viewpoint in 1997, the year after she gave that famous keynote address at Fasting and Prayer 96 in St. Louis begin at my sanctuary. Here she is again. Oh, Nancy, that there's so much that you would love to say to our listeners here this morning. Uh, when we get back from this break, I'd like for you to share with us the meaning of your words that you addressed to that uh, gathering of 4,000 people back in November in St. Louis when you said the bride has forgotten how to blush. Folks, it seems that the church has forgotten how to blush. But why did we need to blush? What's happened to us that we can't blush? We're going to talk about that when we get back from this break. You'll hear Jefferson a little break. Declared, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God...
a hold of a source book of quotations out of our nation's past? Well, I want to make that possible for you. It's literally an 850-page encyclopedia of quotations called America's God and Country. This is a resource you can use. Students, parents, teachers, pastors, writers, there's nothing like it. You can obtain your copy of America's God and Country for your contribution of $25 or more to Save America Ministries. Just send your check for $25 or more to Save America. P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. And we'll put this great resource, America's God and Country, in your hands. Just send your check now for $25 or more to Save America. P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. You'll bless yourself for doing it, and you'll help support the work of Save America Mysteries. So do it now. If you are in sales, now is your chance to learn from the best performance sales trainer in the country. Brian Tracy, coming right here to Richmond on March 24th. The renowned Brian Tracy, author of the bestseller, The Psychology of Selling, has sold more books, videos, and audio cassettes than any other well, speaker this is in an history. Ad, friends, See him at his full-day advanced program. selling techniques seminar. You'll learn the best secrets of top salespeople earning in excess of six-figure incomes. You'll learn how to gain commitment from your prospect before the presentation, telephone techniques which get the appointment every time, and how to develop self-image and self-confidence that will give you the winning edge. Just Brian the opposite Tracy will message. share the secrets of how he earned millions of dollars in sales commissions. Call and reserve your seat now for this explosive program. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to learn from the very best in the sales field. Right here in Richmond, seating is limited. So call toll-free 1-888-766-3887 now to reserve your tickets. That's 1-888-766-3887. Your income gets better when you get better. Or in Richmond, call now, 230-1502. That's 230-1502. Co-sponsored in part by Lamar, Central Fidelity, Primco, and American Family. Just the me opposite the message. The dream I have is to cultivate people, help them forward in becoming everything they can be for Christ. Pastor Jack Hayford. The Spirit-Filled Life series, of course, is dedicated to this. Created to meet the needs of spirit-filled believers, the Spirit-Filled Life series is a comprehensive integrated study system. The Spirit-Filled Life Bible, the Spirit-Filled Life Bible for students, Hayford's Bible Handbook, and Spirit-Filled Life Study Guides. God's Spirit is releasing people with a dynamism today that is characterized by the stream of God and the winds of God. At the same time, we need it to be rooted in the Word of God. The Spirit-Filled Life family of Scripture resources from Thomas Nelson. Scholarship, balance, and integrity. Look for the symbol of the descending dove at a Christian bookstore near you. Now available at Logos Bookstore, 716 West Gray Street, with plenty of free parking. For more information, call 644-9924. And now it's 26 years later. Viewpoint, we're becoming Christians that count for the kingdom. God did not call us to be conformed, but to be transformed. And that, by the renewing of our minds, that we might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So today, on Viewpoint, as always, we are looking at present issues with eternal perspective, con perspective confronting the issues of America's heart and America's home. Today, we're focusing on the matter of how to change a nation from the inside out. 
It's got to begin not in the White House, but in the church house. And then what does the church house mean if it does not mean your house and my house? To help us with this today, I've invited Nancy Lay DeMoss, who delivered what ultimately proved to be the keynote address at Fasting and Prayer 96 at St. Louis back in November of 96, an address given to 4,000 leaders from across the nation who gathered for prayer and for fasting. What is God saying to us as a people? How can we change? I asked the question earlier in this broadcast, how does God call a nation to repentance? The answer is he sends a voice. Well, to whom is the voice directed? It's directed to the church, to my people. It's directed and rebuked to pastors who fail to teach the whole truth, to lead by holy example, to protect from error and heal the people. It's directed to prophets who falsify, twist, and lighten the clear word of God in favor of the prophets in money, merchandising, manipulation, and men's adulation. And it's directed first to the spiritual power brokers, those in public ministry, and then to the civil power brokers of the day, politicians, corporations, and businessmen. But God is sending a voice, and I believe one of those, uh, the voices, is Nancy Lay DeMoss. Uh, she has a tremendous heart broken in repentance for the church of Jesus Christ. The home front. Your front, my front, our homes. Nancy, you indicated in your address that the bride has forgotten how to blush. We sin without shame. What is the significance of that? Well, to me that describes uh, what has happened in, our, in, this, in this generation of our evangelical Christianity. And I say that with grief. Um, and yet fact is that we do sin shamelessly in our churches. I get calls and letters and hear reports day after day after day of uh, respected um, Christian leaders, both lay and professional, in every realm of church and ministry life um, who are um, compromising with the world, with uh, rejecting the ways of God, and yet these things can go on in our churches um, undealt with. I remember one pastor uh, with a real heart for God who listened as his in, in a prayer meeting for revival as his uh, those gathered for that prayer meeting were asked to make a list of the sins of the world the sins of our nation that we need to confess. They listed probably 30 or 40 mm. sins by name specific sins and then he said with such grief that it was week or two later that he realized with shame and heaviness of heart that virtually every single one of those sins was present and had not been dealt with previously in the life of his own body, the church, wow. uh, that local church, including, he said, some that weren't on the list of the world's sins mm. that were too shameful to mention. Wow. Here they were within the four walls of his own local church there. Mm. Uh, it's and the fact that we don't have church discipline in relation to these matters, that we are, you know, tolerance has become the supreme virtue. Mm -hmm. And we want to accept everybody and love everybody, and we want to focus on the love and the mercy and the grace of God. But Chuck, the grace, the kindness, the cross of Christ, the shedding of his blood means nothing if we do not 
ever see ourselves as being under the condemnation of the law. Mm. We are not willing to see God as first and always a holy God. See? Not just in the Old Testament, but in the New as well. Absolutely, and I think there's been a lot of confusion and misteaching uh, in this generation along those lines. For instance, uh, probably one of the most misquoted scriptures is the one that says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And that's an exact quote, but it's not the whole thing, but that's where everybody stops. But the scripture goes on to say, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. There is condemnation to those who walk after the flesh. And we have been walking after the flesh and have not been walking after a holy God. We've been pursuing happiness rather than holiness. And now we're neither happy nor holy. And the bride is not blushing, as you have said. Nancy, it seems to me that one of the most litmus paper tests of how far the body of Christ has literally fallen from grace is that the divorce rate now among uh, fundamentalist Bible-believing Christians now exceeds that of the nation as a whole by 7%, according to latest reports. That is, it, to me, uh, it pierces to the, the, the very core of my being. How do you feel about that? Well, I feel like crying. Um, and I've heard and used that statistic, and um, I still find it honestly hard to believe. Mm. Yet I've watched in my lifetime as um, the church corporately and, and on the local and individual level has moved from standing with God on the permanence of marriage, the sacredness of marriage, and how marriage is intended to reflect to the world the heart of God, the relationships within the Trinity, the mystery of redemption, and yet we have um, diluted that truth, evaded it, mm -hmm. um, covered it over, rejected it, explained it away, looked for exceptions in every corner, and uh, today, um, it, it not only is divorce tolerated in the church, but it's actually, in so many instances, promoted um, with all kinds of reasons and justifications and rationalizations. Mm -hmm. And I'm not in favor of hating divorced people. No. Um, I, I, that's not God's way, but God's way is that we would acknowledge um, the purity of marriage, the yes. sacredness of marriage, and that mm. we would move toward reconciliation rather yes. than looking for ways to defend the practice. Yes. You know, three weeks ago, I sat at breakfast with the... Uh, international head of counseling ministries for focus on the family and he was in deep grief having just returned from a secular conference in washington let me urge you to become you can get the gist of it my dear friends vision for the nation are we ready for a genuine day of prayer god bless and be a blessing